Today we discuss the Supreme Court ruling overturning the federal eviction moratorium and putting 11 million people in the United States at risk of being thrown into the streets in the middle of the COVID pandemic. The rationale used by the court to issue this cruel edict is the essence of capitalism. Protect property owners, quote, right to exclude, close quote, at all costs. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it, capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are happy to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons. Go to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and become a subscriber today. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. In 1912, Richard, Eugene Debs ran for president. He ran for president four times, the last time being from his jail cell, where he was imprisoned for 10 years at hard labor for the crime of speaking out against the American entrance into World War I. But in 1912, which is the same year that the voters got, not of course women, because they still didn't have the right to vote, but voters and most black people, but those who could vote got to vote directly for their senator in their state. Prior to that, there wasn't direct elections for the Senate. Eugene Debs called for the abolition of the Senate. He said, why do we need a House of Lords? He also called for the abolition of the Supreme Court. He said the Supreme Court's existence was the negation of democracy or even the semblance, even a pretend democracy. Now we have the Supreme Court, nine very affluent people, all of them are millionaires. Six of them, these begowned attorneys, most of whom live in very, very affluent areas where I am in Washington, D.C., they ruled that there was a breathtaking overreach by the CDC, which declared that there should be a moratorium on evictions in the middle of a highly contagious pandemic. Of course, that was done prior to the vaccination, but even still, you know, millions of Americans are not vaccinated millions of young people, children, many of whom will be evicted now, don't even qualify for the vaccination. So again, being safe 
or being isolated or being at home won't be possible because the Supreme Court ruled that it was a breathtaking overreach on the part of the CDC and a violation of the contract clause of the Constitution to say that the rights of tenants in a time of emergency, even in a time of emergency, shouldn't take precedence over the contract clause of the Constitution. Here's what the Supreme Court ruled by six to three. Quote, it's hard to see what measures this interpretation, meaning the moratorium, would place outside the CDC's reach. And the government has identified no limit in beyond the requirement that the CDC deem a measure, quote, necessary. Could the CDC, for example, mandate free grocery delivery to the homes of the sick and the vulnerable? Could it require manufacturers to provide free computers to enable people to work from home? Order telecommunications companies to provide free high-speed internet service to facilitate remote work? Preventing landlords from evicting tenants who breach their leases intrudes on one of the most fundamental elements of property ownership, the right to exclude. Richard Wolff, almost like a pure explanation of pure capitalism. Well, we have to remember that private property, which is what's going on here, predates capitalism. In other words, capitalism sanctifies private property, but there had been previous economic systems that worked with private property too. What's remarkable in this decision of the Supreme Court is the degree to which these six human beings are blinded, not just to the competing demands, that is the demands of interests society has beyond private property, but they're apparently unaware or not willing to consider what we call the contradictions, the problems that a commitment to private property brings with it that are brought to the fore here. Let me explain. All that private property ever is, is the right to exclude. They seem to not get that too well, but okay, let's explain it to them. Private property means that I, as an individual, or a group of individuals, or an institution, have the right to exclude other people from something. So I own this piece of land means I can tell you, you must get off of it, you cannot be on it, it is mine. Or I have this piece of machinery, I will do with it what I want, no claim of yours applies to this machinery because I have the right to exclude any claim of any other person. It is my property. That's all property means is the right to exclude. And the minute you allow private property, in other words, you allow an individual to make his or her relationship to an object, a exclusion of all others, you're going to immediately have enormous social problems, which these justices seem not to want to deal with or not to remember if they were ever taught it. And if they weren't, it would seem to me to disqualify them as Supreme Court justices. But let's assume, therefore, that they 
know what I'm talking about. Let me give you examples of the contradictions. Suppose there's a village, and suppose that the way the village lives anywhere in the world is by cultivating the soil and raising animals on the soil. That's how they provide their food. Now suppose the land becomes the private property of somebody, a member of the village or an outsider, it really doesn't matter. To say that the land is private property means, has no other meaning than whoever the owner of the private property is, has the right to exclude everybody else. So let's assume that the individual who owns the land, which provides the food for the village, decides to exclude the village. Let's assume it's a man and he likes this land to be, well, let's say, a place where he can hunt rabbits, if that's the kind of cruelty he prefers. And he doesn't want anyone to interfere in his extermination of bunnies. Now we have a problem. His assertion of the private property, the right to exclude, means the village dies of starvation because the land is how it provides its food. You can see what's coming. The village is going to contest, going to contest the private property of the landowner, the landlord, the owner of the property in land. And they're going to do it because their very existence is threatened. You know, like being told that the apartment you have, which is the only way to keep washing your hands, which they tell you is going to keep you alive in a pandemic, keep you away from other people, keep you in a safe zone, your life is threatened by the private property assertion of the owner of the land. In history, landlords who do this quickly discover that the village becomes angry. The village becomes desperate. And pretty soon, in many cases, the landlord rethinks his position and loses the right to exclude either temporarily or permanently. And when landlords were not prepared to forego private property, the village often discovered a deep truth. In order to have access to the land, you don't need the landlord. The land is there whether or not the landlord, the owner, is. And you can get rid of the owner one way or another, and the land will then be available to the village. This little story is understood by everyone who goes to law school, which you think would include the Supreme Court justices, but they seem to have forgotten. Here's the principle. It's called eminent domain. Here's how it works. Yes, you own a piece of land here in the United States today. And yes, you own the building that's been erected on that piece of land. And it's your private property. Yes, it is. And you have the right to exclude people from it. Maybe these people you let in and these people you don't. 
the ones you let in pay you money every month for rent, and the people you don't let in are not the ones paying you. Very typical. Now the community in which your building is located, the community, the village, the town, where the land exists that I'm talking about, they decide that this community needs an open-air park for the children of the village to play in. Does the community have the right to take away the private property of the individual who owns that land upon which that building sits? In case you're not familiar with the principle of eminent domain, which has been, get this, upheld by the Supreme Court on countless occasions. The answer is yes. The community, in the name of what the community needs, can require that the owner of the land and the building sell it to the community. That's right. They can't refuse to do that. There is no legal basis for them to refuse, assuming that it's in the community's interest and that the village has followed the usual procedures. In other words, private property is abrogated, private property is thrust aside, and the collective property, the village, the town, wants a playground for children, takes precedence. This had to be accomplished, because if you didn't, you would have had civil war long ago. Civil war how? civil war between those who amassed private property and those who didn't, because those who didn't would be threatened in the quality of their life or even in the life itself by the right to exclude that goes with private property. Let me give you a hint. The vast majority of the history of the human race human communities have excluded private property. In the Middle Ages, in much of European feudalism, the dominant religion was Roman Catholicism. Whenever, and it happened occasionally, people decided that they wanted and indeed asserted private property in land, this is my piece of land and I can exclude the right to private property, the Roman Catholic Church would declare such an assertion to be blasphemy, to go against the teachings of the church, to be hideous in the sight of Jesus Christ, etc. And why? Well, they had an interesting argument. Human beings didn't create the land. They didn't put it there. They have no claim to have created it or caused it to come into being. And therefore, they are usurping what is God's product, what is God's property, and that cannot be any private person's property. And such claims were thrown out by canonical law, the law of the Roman Catholic Church. So you don't need to be someone strange to be against private property, the church itself, which many consider to be a conservative institution, militated against private property when 
it felt the need. Well, so we come then to the Supreme Court. What is the need of our society? On the one hand, we have landlords who collect rents. And on the other hand, we have tenants who pay rents. The landlords are a relatively small number relative to the tenants who are a very large number. Very typical in the history of private property. Those who have it are relatively few, and those who don't are relatively many. And therein lies the fundamental problem. And you are not going to pretend it isn't there by the kind of bizarre logic of the Supreme Court. Of course, there's a problem here when you've got the right to live, the right to be safe in the face of COVID in the majority versus the right to earn income from your private property for a minority. The notion that this isn't a set of competing interests which you have to weigh, but instead you have a primary loyalty that goes to the minority who have property, that's a mentality only the most conservative, rich, anti-democratic mentality can entertain. It's so interesting, Richard, that the court's ruling in this moment when the obvious social or community need and the needs of the majority outweighs the needs of a smaller minority and how society has that right in terms of the exercise of eminent domain and other authorities. During 1934, when there was massive foreclosures and evictions, the Supreme Court in a, I think it's called the Home Loan and Savings Decision, the court ruled, quote, during periods of emergency, the people's right to survive supersedes the contract clause of the Constitution. And of course, what was happening in 1934, as you have mentioned, there were two socialist parties that were growing. There was a communist party. There were very large unemployed councils that were actually blocking, physically blocking evictions, creating real physical struggles in cities and towns around the country. There was a general strike that year in three different cities, Toledo, Ohio, Minneapolis, Minnesota, San Francisco, a rising tide of struggle. And suddenly the Supreme Court thought, wait, the right of the people to survive supersedes the contract clause of the Constitution, which goes to the point that you've made frequently on this show and that we want to emphasize to people because you know, sometimes people look at the Supreme Court as spectators. We're spectators and we're happy or unhappy, disappointed frequently that they've done the wrong thing, when really the only way for the right thing to happen is for people to actually band together, struggle together. If you have 11 million people facing eviction in a very, very, very short period of time, they won't all be evicted, but millions will. They all have, at the same moment, a common cause. And then you have all of the other parts of the population who aren't being evicted, but who sympathize with them, who think it's just wrong to evict people, drive them from their homes. At the very beginning of a school year, 
millions of kids to be driven from their homes. In New York City, we already have a situation where one out of every 10 children in public schools is technically homeless. So exacerbating that. Anyway, the point is that there is a need for people to band together. And also, even though the Supreme Court seems to be supreme, there's another power that might be a higher power. (laughs) Right. Let me pick up on one thing you've said, which is always important to keep in mind. The Supreme Court, especially on its current composition, is a creature of the George Bushes and the Donald Trumps, and not to exempt the Democrats, they do a bit better, but not all that much. They represent the power, the capitalist system, the owners of production, the people with the mass of private property to protect. But they are also frightened. These are people easily frightened. And nothing would frighten them more and therefore more likely change their minds overnight than if the mass of people reacted to their decision by saying, no way is this going forward. And let me give you an idea, borrowing from your comparison with the 1930s. A very famous scene played out across the United States in the 1930s when they tried to evict people. The eviction notice would be tacked on the door by the landlord, and dutifully a few weeks later, or maybe only a few days, the sheriff would arrive. And the job of the sheriff and the sheriff's deputies was literally to go into the house, forcing the door if they had to, and removing everything in the apartment, the beds, the chairs, the tables, the radios, whatever, and throw them out on the pavement. And there the poor family being evicted would have not very long, a couple of days, to get that stuff out of there before the city would come and basically destroy it, take it away. And so what began to happen was a kind of spontaneous movement, most of the time, sometimes organized by political radicals, who would come as soon as the sheriff and his people left, they would arrive, break open the lock that the sheriff had left on the apartment, and move everything that was on the street corner back into the apartment. There weren't enough police to go around. There weren't enough sheriffs to go around to handle this situation. The more you evicted, the more your eviction was undone. If the police came back, you waited until nighttime. Then you did it. And if you did it in all these different places at the same time, there weren't enough police to stop it. Then there were clashes when the police and those returning the materials into the apartment got there at the same time, things could quickly escalate. And now it was beginning to be a war between a minority, landlord plus cops, and a majority, tenants, and all of those who sympathized with tenants. Maybe those who still had a few more months before they would face evictions. And that was becoming a civil war around private property. 
You want to change the mind of the Supreme Court? Let them begin to understand they're unleashing a civil war and they will immediately confront that they, the Supreme Court type people, and the landlords are a minority and the vast majority of people are likely to have sympathies on the other side. At that point, guess what? The decision is reversed and the Supreme Court directs the United States, you cannot evict, but if the problem that causes eviction is that landlords, particularly little ones, aren't getting the rent they need, well then your job as the U.S. Congress is to develop a program to help the small landlord get through this difficult period, and that can be done in a dozen different ways that will not provoke a civil war. The logic here is impeccable. And the only thing anyone should understand is that this decision by the Supreme Court is a little bit like a dare. Dare we get away with this, we rich folks and we landlords, or will the mass of the American people rise up against it? In which case, we will quickly backtrack and undo what we've done. They're testing the water to see how much of the decline of American capitalism, because that's what we're living through, how much of the costs of that decline can be offloaded onto the poorest of the poor, the tenants who can't pay the rent for the last few months, and how much of it is actually going to have to be shared by those at the top who can, of course, afford to share it the most. Yeah, very, very important. There's a letter now written by 60 members of the U.S. Congress, you know, predominantly the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. They're not radicals. Some of them call themselves, you know, Democratic Socialists, but, you know, their political orientation is about where Lyndon Johnson's Great Society politics would have been in 1966 or 1967. But Congress itself has moved so far to the right that the liberal wing of the Democratic Party is actually quite small. The Democratic Party, especially in the 1990s during the Clinton era, moved you know, significantly to the right, even on domestic issues. Clinton got rid of welfare as we know it, as we all remember, eliminating 10 million people from benefits in a single day. Seven million of those 10 million were children. The laws or the regulations inhibiting unionization became worse. I mean, the whole political establishment moved further and further to the right. So now the liberals in Congress are a pretty minor force, but 60 of them have written a letter to Nancy Pelosi insisting that Congress take action. And, you know, all of the Congress went on vacation. Only Cori Bush, one lone congresswoman, and she was a political activist from the Black Lives Matter movement in Ferguson, Missouri, after the killing of Mike Brown. She ran for Congress later. She's a real activist you know, person, not a politician. She had that sit-in on the steps of the Capitol. And then Biden, who said nothing can be done and you know, asked Congress to do something, but very weakly, he then 
redeclared the moratorium and then also suggested that he would lose in court. In other words, not a very much of a fighting program. Now we have 60 members of Congress insisting that Nancy Pelosi take action. And right now, the Democrats control the House of Representatives. They have a slim majority, but the majority in the Senate. They have the White House. If the Democrats wanted to take further action, they could. Whether they do or not will be, you know, it's a political priority. It's a decision. Making 11 million people homeless right now will, in fact, be a policy choice because the Supreme Court, again, is not really supreme. The Congress, I mean, can take action. If the Congress or the Democrats said to the people of the country, look, we're facing a combination of big banks and Blackstone and the big realtors and the Republicans, and we want to have a march of a half a million people in Washington demanding justice for all of these people who are going to be evicted through no fault of their own. A half a million people, I think, under those circumstances would actually come to Washington. But the Congress and the Democrats aren't going to do that because they're still so wedded to the same political and commercial interests. But if we, the people, actually are able to ignite a kind of grassroots opposition, all of these political forces, the Supreme Court, I'm using air quotes for Supreme, the U.S. Congress, all of the different powers that be that say nothing can be done, actually all of them can be moved. Bottom line is really, it's up to us. Go ahead, Richard. This is going to be my final point to you and let you take us out with that. Yeah, I think that private property is obviously a favored idea for people who have the most property because they're the ones who need to protect and want to protect what they have accumulated and what they have acquired. The law of private property does not apply to the question, how did you get the property? Did you steal it? Did you rip people off for 50 years or 100 years to get it? Private property says, if it's yours, you then, by definition, have the right to exclude. And the interesting thing about private property is not only that it doesn't acquire Uh, inquire into how this property was accumulated by you. Did you produce it? Well, I gave you the example of land before. Obviously, nobody produced the land. So you didn't make it. So what's your claim? Well, that's never been asked. We simply say it's your private property. Therefore, you have the right to exclude. Likewise, not investigated by the concept of private property is what the social costs of that exclusion are. Will tens of thousands of children be unable to go to school? Will tens of thousands of children die of COVID who wouldn't have had to if they hadn't been evicted from their homes? We're supposed to all be, according to the Supreme Court, so deeply in love with private property that we don't ask any of these questions. Is private property a limitless concept? No matter how much you have, you have the right to exclude? You know, it's remarkable. It might make sense if we're talking about your toothbrush, but does it make sense if you're like Bill Gates and you own more land than any other American, land you never even set foot on? What's going on here? 
Why is this an absolute that our Supreme Court endorses? This is not a matter of principle. This is a matter of naked self-interest by the richest owners of property who don't want anyone messing with anything because they don't know where that might stop. And you might not just quarrel about this or that piece, but about the whole principle. People have been critical of private property from the beginning of the human race. So let me go out with what I said earlier. Most of the history of the human race, human beings did not have private property. That idea had to be invented. And what human beings came up with is something that human beings can also get beyond. It's outlived whatever usefulness it ever had. It is now, as we see, an engine of naked inequality and the maintenance of that inequality. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.